And since I'm kind of moderator, I, I reserve the right to ask the first question. So I, I'm going to do that. And this is just something that I don't know if I've ever asked you guys this, but what would you say qualifies as addiction? Because uh, <clears throat> you know, I think there's probably plenty of people who find themselves, uh, you know, maybe looking at pornography occasionally, and they think I don't need help because I'm not addicted like other people are. So, what qualifies as addiction? Well, I think the first first sign is if you want to stop, and for one reason or another, don't stop. So I think that's the simplest. Um, then you're probably, it's not gonna be overkill to think that you're maybe in a early stage. Um, so noticing that I think is a big old wake up call. Certainly if there's a pattern where you do stop for a while and then you always go back. So that's a, that's a telltale sign that you're you're getting a track record and that's gonna show you something. Uh, if there are no other things going on, you're probably in an early stage. Um, and that's like, that's kind of like with, um, with drugs, they say people experiment first, so early stage. And some people drop off and never do it again, but others do. So that's when it starts getting later stage. Um, so those are the earlier signs. Um, and then of course, negative consequences. That could be inner, so you're um, going against your moral compass and you don't want to, but you always go back. Or it starts taking time away from studies or work or, or you find yourself keeping it a secret. <laughs> okay, that's a telltale sign. Uh, that it's, it's bigger than you are. Um, I have to wonder if there's any kind of track record with it at all. I have to wonder if it wouldn't be prudent to call it an early stage addiction because porn isn't like, um, I don't know, pain pills. People, people can use pain pills to relieve pain <laughs> from doctors, you know, doctors prescribe them. Porn is, there isn't any legit use, I would say, you know, especially for the Christian, you know, there's no legit use of porn. So, so I would have to, um, I would have to say that that's kind of a state that you'd want to be thinking in terms of, dude, I am doing something that I don't want to be doing <laughs> and I've done it for a while. What's up with that? So that's, that's how I would, and then of course all the other clinical symptoms, uh, increases over time, but by the time you see some of those symptoms, it's really pretty late to be getting some help because you're usually starting to lose relationships and lose other things, do damage to your kids through the non-relationality that happens in the brain, so forth and so on. Just kind of bull in a china shop. So I would catch it early if I were you. Okay, good. Anybody else? Anybody else? So. I would just add, for me it was cravings. Uh, looking for images, things of that nature, and I grew up in a non-video era. So for me, laugh, Sears Roebuck Catalog, National Geographic, those were good sources of uh, naked images or semi-naked images, but it, it's a craving that it just could not crush. It was always there. Okay, good. All right, next question. I have rededicated my life to God <clears throat> and turned this over to Him to help me, but I'm worried that I have looked at some images that were not uh, nude images but close to it on the internet, and I don't want to go into anything more extreme. So not, not really a, a question asked, it's just that statement, but... Um, um, yeah, if you know, it's it's hard to avoid if you're on the internet to any degree whatsoever. It's almost impossible to ignore at least soft porn, or what used to qualify as soft porn. I think Lisa, you mentioned earlier that there really is no such thing. Um, but yeah, it, once that door is opened, how do you avoid going deeper without being a luddite and just throwing your computer away? 
Uh, whoa, sorry, that was loud. <clears throat> uh, I would say, uh, I mean, depending upon where you're at, you may have to throw your computer away for a while. <laughs> like, I, I mean, uh, you know, take some extreme measures early on. But I think it's, it's getting people in your life where you can say that to them and they're going to, like, bring grace and conviction and care and love to you. And then they're going to ask you about that later. And, and having people, I think we refuse to repent of sins before they become really big things and then they have really big consequences. But if we repent of all these little things quickly and don't allow those places to get there, like, yes, those, those things are going to happen and you, you, you might respond in some way. And so what you immediately need to do is repent, take that to the Lord, and then run to someone and tell them and have them be in your life. So, so that you can have a person that you can say, hey, I know exactly who I call when this opens up because I, I don't want to go there. And I just want to add, too, for me, especially when I got into recovery, it's very easy once you get a good track record of sobriety, then suddenly this pops up where there's that small image that in your mind you might think, oh, it's nothing, and I can handle it. I've had a huge track record. Things are going great. I can manage it myself. But as Pastor Josh said, that's where the support group that I had in my life really became important because at that point the communication has to happen because it always starts if you've been in a good history of recovery it always starts small to get you back to where you don't want to get to and once you communicate that to somebody then they're going to you're going to tell them check on me you know how's that going have you seen any more images you got to start that communication because those little things as he said can turn into big things firmly believe in spiritual warfare, uh, images will come up, uh, which we've, I refer to as a temptation. And temptations in and of themselves are not sin, but if you start to play with it, you don't rebuke it, it can become sin. And it becomes a trigger for the enemy to come in and bring in more images, kind of like an open door to you. So I strongly encourage you, you see an image, tell it the spirit of lust to go away. Take authority. Jesus Christ has given us the authority to bind these uh, spirits. Do it. Believe me, it works. Yes, to all of the above. The clinical perspective just weaving in here. Um, Besides the fact that, that porn, internet porn, is addictive in and of itself because of how it comes into the brain and so forth through the visual cortex and so forth, um, there's also, if it's ongoing, it is generally being used by the body for a, an oxytocin release, and Coach Alyssa was talking about that in hers, not just in children, but in adults as well. So then the question becomes, from a psychotherapy point of view, what are we medicating? <laughs> How many layers of trauma, how many years does that represent that when a certain challenge comes up in life, we subconsciously go to lift the oxytocin level? So that's where really good psychotherapy and EMDR can really, you know, the game of shoots and ladders, that can be, those can be ladders. <laughs> And it just makes our walk with Christ easier. So, yeah. Yeah. Let me commend the uh, question asker. Uh, that, that shows a sensitivity in your spirit to the beginning stages of sin, and so that's that's a very good thing. So, uh, be encouraged by that. But like everybody has said here, the small sins always lead to big sins. No, nobody starts just entering into major serious sins. It always starts with smaller steps, first of all. So a follow-up question to that, um, what, what do you recommend um, that we do about images that remain in our heads from images that, that we've seen, you know, maybe even 20, 30, 40 years ago, <laughs> that just kind of get stamped in there and they just keep coming up? <laughs> Being addicted all my life to pornography, 
I have a lot of images in my mind. Uh, when I finally surrendered to Christ, I, I confessed everything generically. But over the years, images would come to mind, specific people, specific actresses, and I use that in quotation marks. And at that point in time, when that image came up, I got in the habit of immediately seeking forgiveness and asking God to forgive that person and to remove anything from my spirit that may have been joined to me from that individual and vice versa. And Father, I ask that you would break any soul tie that has come because of that person's image and the association I had through pornography. And amazingly, the image has disappeared. It doesn't come back. Now, I've gone through a lot of them because I've got a lot of images. But it seems like God has been bringing them to mind as I'm ready to deal with them. But when they come to mind, deal with them. Take them to God. He will walk you through it. And kind of from a clinical perspective of since I've been with Lisa for three years, uh, she teaches something called the three-second rule, which basically, when that image pops in your brain, and I've had you know millions of images I've seen through many years, but as they've decreased, they still pop in, but you basically have three seconds to get it out, and sometimes not even that, but kind of the way you fight an image is with another image, and you also incorporate the voice system or your vocal cords, you actually will in her case, you know, in my case, we talk about a stop sign. So if you have an image pop in, if you picture a stop sign, which is easy, it's like the pink elephant, if you can't stop thinking about that, just think of a stop sign. And you actually say stop. You actually vocally will say stop. Now, if you're in a crowded room, it might look a little funny, but you actually can actually say the word stop even to your breath. And then you say, you know, that person's a child of, you know, our living God. You actually say some type of a devotion or something to get your mind back on Christ as quick as you can. And like he said, in terms of the actual images, remember there's mental, there's brain damage as we've talked about, but over time as you condition yourself, I will, I'm truthfully telling you those images do go away. They actually, it's, and it's amazingly a blessing when there's sometimes I think to myself, well those images aren't there, my mind's clear and it's because my brain has been repaired from years sometimes of just practicing this practice of doing these tools over and over and over but that is in essence just think of how we train ourselves to do anything you have to repeat the process to, until it sticks uh, one thing I would add to that, probably the most influential uh, individual sermon I've ever read uh, is by a guy named Thomas Chalmers called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Uh, I think he was a Puritan, so it's like a really long title. Um, so you can look this up online, you can read it, but, but uh, w what he talks about is like to replace uh, a sinful desire, we actually need something better. We can't just say like, we can't, and you hit on it too, right? You can't just say stop. You have to fill it with something else. And so the other way to combat those things is we actually combat it when it's not there by filling our mind with Jesus. And so the more and more that we can fill our hearts with a love for Jesus, the more and more that we can fill our minds with uh, a love of, of who he is, which means we got to like actually know things about him and read the word and read theology and like dig deep into those things, that that's actually a super practical way to fill your mind with something glorious so that you have something to think about and to uh, uh, that your heart can cling to rather than these images. And so that's like a another kind of layer to that. Most of that battle happens not in the moment, but because of all your preparation for that moment. Good. Yep. Um, I suppose one of the possible unintended consequences of the things that we've been hearing today is that we, we might come away thinking that, that sex itself is, is an evil thing, a, a bad thing. Um, the question here says, how do I remain sex positive as a parent without involving porn? So as a parent, how do I communicate that as created by God, sex is a good thing without giving them the impression that that would open the door to pornography use? Give the man the mic. 
I would read Song of Solomon because that's the image of how God created the relationship between a man and a wife, man and woman to be. I think, too, one thing that's important, in, 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 especially in terms of training children, is um, beginning with the positive and not, uh, the, not simply the negative side of things. Like, uh, I think we can't just simply, uh, like, we can't ignore that and be like, oh, we're just going to teach these positive things and, and pretend like there isn't this, you know, lion roaring around out back. But, like, we have to actually also teach the positive that um, your, your body was designed by God for glorious things and so how do we actually can communicate that and some of that is we have to wrestle with that ourselves first before we're able to teach our children those things um, and so even I would say wrestling through what are what are my views on this and and where do I hold some of those things and where do I need to be corrected myself and then there's great resources out there too that will help you teach children age-appropriate sex positive um, you know, biblical principles and things like that that I think are helpful as well. Good. All right. So, hello? Yeah. No. Yes. Can you hear me? Okay. Just saying. Uh, <laughs> the, um, so the way that um, Coach Alyssa was talking about dealing with children, really young ones, um, that is, um, that's an excellent foundation because you're, you're taking the time um, and again, like Josh was saying, we have to examine ourselves and figure out, are we shame-based in our bodies? And if so, we've got some work to do. Because, um, you know, as a woman growing up in, in our society, um, I did not even realize until I was about sort of 40-something and started traveling around the world um, that I really just hated my body. I was just hating on it. <laughs> just uh, thought I was, you know... Uh, too fat, too big, too this, too that. Um, and that, that's pretty insidious. I think most of our women uh, have uh, just this underlying uh, shame-based um, you know, body image. So those are things that children pick up. It's pretty subtle, but they do. So this behooves us as not just women, but also uh, just both genders of parent to really examine ourselves, to make peace with the idea that God chose to inhabit earthen vessels. He chose to make them. <laughs> this is his thing, as Josh was talking about. Um, and it, it, wasn't our, it wasn't our deal, it was his. So his choice is to put us in uh, vessels that are, have a certain characteristics. We need to sleep at night. It makes us different than God. I think, I think uh, um, Pastor, um, oh, come on, Brian was... Um, had a series or something or other about that, you know, how sleep is one of those, reasons, one of those ways we know that we're not God, <laughs> our need for sleep. Um, but, but the fact that, that we're equipped with all of these amazing things that our bodies are wired to do. Um, so that foundation, it doesn't have to have anything to do with sex, but talking to kids through these little curricula and so forth, about bodies and about uh, certain parts being private and other parts being, you know, and because they're special and so forth and so on. Um, that lays a good uh, foundation in my opinion. And then, of course, when they become able to understand more at adolescence, just helping them understand that there are some, our, our bodies are equipped for as perfect of a relationship <laughs> as possible on this earth with another person, okay? Um, but it's not just body-oriented. There are two parts. One is emotional intimacy and the other, and these are the terms I use. Obviously, you're not going to maybe use the same terms, but emotional intimacy and physical intimacy. Physical intimacy is the expression of emotional intimacy that is already intact. And so the real challenge then is to educate them and demonstrate to them in the household as much as possible, prayerfully, <laughs> laced with prayer, um, what emotional intimacy looks like the eye contact, the, the touching that's appropriate, the I am there for you, come what may, that kind of thing. And then to let them know, yeah, the equipment <laughs> for the physical part is intact and ready to go long before you have the person that it's made for, that kind of thing. Um, and so, so literally the physical intimacy is, is, um, uh, it is uh, preceded by a lot 
the building of the capacity to build the emotional intimacy because the physical intimacy is the expression of a deep love relationship. So I, I think that, yeah, sex positive. Um, I think that's sex positive. I mean, I think it's sex positive because we're talking about it throughout their years of being raised. And, uh, and I think it's sex positive if you yourselves as parents can have a very present, very deliberate uh, physicality that is appropriate in the household and modeled with that mate. I think that goes a long way towards sex positive. Lisa, hang on to the mic because uh, it's a two-part question. I'm taking two questions, putting them into one. Uh, first question is, how much does your counseling cost? <laughs> and, uh, and then secondly, what is EMDR therapy like, or what does a session look like? <laughs> well, uh, start with a simple one. Um, so I have a website, it's lightsourcecounseling.com. Light as in daylight, light source as in God. <laughs> okay, um, and that has all of the fees. There are several, my fees are really kind of varied. If you're a church member, you have one fee. Um, if you are a pastor, you have that same fee. If you're, um, you know, so forth and so on. So it, it goes kind of like that. Um, I do not process insurance. So, but I, so at the end of a month, I give a super bill that you can take home with the proper codes and things to send to your insurance company. And we have had some very encouraging uh, replies from insurance companies these days. Some of them are covering uh, some of this counseling they didn't used to. And it also has helped that uh, about a year ago, the World Health Organization finally figured out that there's enough evidence to call <laughs> sexual compulsivity or uh, porn issues, whatever we want to call it to call it a diagnosis, it's sex addiction. Now they haven't, they haven't made up the number yet, so we can't code it yet, but is they've already made that decision and as soon as they come out with their next book, it'll be in there. So that will help and that's probably what insurance companies are feeling. So there's a little more chance there, quite a bit more chance that they're gonna be covering some. Um, so my fees range from the normal fee right now and it's about to go up because I have a new certification coming in as an EMDR certified, but um, 120 an hour, that's pretty reasonable for this part of the country. We uh, try and stay within a range of my uh, colleagues who are counselors so that we're not undercutting anybody. Um, uh, that's the normal fee. Right now the church rate is 75 an hour, so it's, it's quite a bit uh, better. Uh, I also just offer a little discount um, to people if they wanna pay early. So if they wanna pay in advance instead of the day of the session, if they wanna pay by like the fifth of the month, uh, they get about somewhere between 15 and 20% discounted. So I try and make it doable, and then I have sort of unspoken rates, case by case basis. Um, people come in, they need it, they haven't got the money. You know? <laughs> and then, you know, once in a while the church kicks in for people and stuff. So there's, there's it's, I'm pretty flowy that was the simple question. The other one, <laughs> the other, uh, that's kind of complex. Uh, the other one's um, EMDR. Well, uh, let's see. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is what EMDR stands for. Um, it is now known. It's one of those, was it? It was you. It was Josh that was saying all of, some of these wonders that we have in the earth and, and even, even um, the Hubble um, um, telescope. telescope those things, God has always been enjoying, <laughs> but he, he kind of saved us being able to see it for our generation. Mm -hmm. And that, that makes me feel really special. <laughs> God's known this all the time. And I'm sure that EMDR is kind of like that, but I think throughout history, before we had the idea of bilateral stimulation, which simply means um, any, anything from sort of the eyes going from side to side, following, say, a light bar or even the therapist's hand like so. Um, that's bilateral stimulation. It, it goes left and right, and it's, it has to do with how our hemispheres are hooked up to our bodies. Um, and and I, we have pulsers. So some people just put a, you know, a, a left pulser in their left hand and a right pulser in their right hand, and we do bilateral stimulation electronically like that. Uh, there's, there are lots of ways to do that. 
old-fashioned way as people used to just do this. Follow my hand. Think about that and follow my hand, you know. Okay, so what's so great about that? It, sounds, it sounded too good to be true for years. That's why I didn't study it, because I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> I'm a psychotherapist. I don't mess with hocus-pocus. But I'm telling you, the research, once I started looking at the research and realizing the results are there, um, the VA actually covers this now for its veterans. And you know they're not going to be paying extra money for no reason. They do that because it works much faster than any other kind of therapy. Isn't that interesting? For, for, and, and literally, we now know that you can, I'll try not to keep going here, but we now know that you can resolve most combat traumas in about 12 EMDR sessions. It's ridiculous. So, so anyhow, so God's always known that. And I have to think that in history, because I do have some clients who's, when they begin to think about a trauma episode, their eyes will automatically start doing this. Some people are like that. The person who founded EMDR was like that. But most people are not. So the hemispheres don't. So trauma is right brain. Right brain is feeling brain. It's basic. It's um, primitive, so to speak. Not really primitive, but it's like basic. So it feels, it doesn't think through feelings. That's the left side. But the two hemispheres don't usually communicate in a flowy way. That's our state, that's our fallen state. I think it probably did, we probably did have a, connect, a better connection in the garden, I, I think we did. But the fallen state says that this doesn't communicate with this very much, so when trauma happens, it lodges in here. And if it happens early, it lodges real heavily in here, heavily guarded. You can still feel it, but you don't know what you're feeling. So, so in the first probably 10, 15 seconds of an EMDR session, when the, when the eyes begin to go back and forth, or the pulsers start, the right and left brain put down a bridge. It's like a little drawbridge. <laughs> and they begin to update with each other. Isn't that great? God wired us for that. This past week alone, um, it's the second week that I've been able to use the final pieces of my education, which I just got three weeks ago in EMDR. This past week alone, I have seen people absolutely switch out from the beginning of the session to the end. People coming in inconsolably crying. And we start that light bar and we talk. And by the end, we're all giggling. It's ridiculous in a good way. The, the spirit of the Lord inhabits this thing. So, what was the question? I'm sorry, I'm just like, <laughs> I think, is, does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, I can't even remember yeah, what yeah, it was, yeah, but good, there good. you go, that's EMDR, it's great. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, in relation to the first part of that question, I know here at this church we have a mercy fund and we're more than healthy, uh, more than happy to help people who need to get counseling but don't feel like they can afford it. So. Uh, depending on the church that you're from, you might want to look into that if you're a member of a church or if you go to a church. Uh, if you can't find the finances, see if your church can help you. Okay, um, <clears throat> another uh, combination of a couple of, of questions here. Is, is masturbation sinful? Is it without watching porn a natural activity? Um, yeah, those two things. Is it a natural activity? Is it, is it sinful? Is it bad? Um, yeah, I, I just, I was waiting for this question because it always comes up. Uh, <laughs> I've had, I've had this conversation so many times, but like this, this question always comes up and I think it, it's a fair question, um, for sure. And, and so I'm not like, I can't point to chapter and verse and be like, Hey, here it is right here, you know? Um, so, but I would say, I think I would approach it from a number of different levels, and I'll give my sort of blunt answer, yes, uh, I believe it's sinful, um, and, and here's why. I think the reality is what this does is it, it declares a couple of things. What it does is it declares that I am, um, I, I, I am that sexuality is necessary, sexual expression, sorry, I want to be specific, sexual expression is necessary. Um, and I, I would make the argument that it's not. Uh, I think that God calls people to a life of celibacy and, and that that's not a lesser human experience. 
Uh, I would make that argument because Jesus says when he's questioned about the uh, new heavens, new earth, and the resurrection from the dead, and they're like, the, the, the Sadducees give this like, long explanation of this, this uh, woman who had all these husbands, who's going to be her husband in the resurrection. And he says, you're not understanding this right. Like, there's, there's no marriage in, in the new heavens and new earth, right? So, new heavens, new earth, no marriage. If sexual expression is within marriage, that means there's no sex in the new heavens and new earth. All right? No sex in the new heavens and new earth. Which means it's not ultimate. Which means it is here to point to something that is ultimate. Which is our relationship with Christ. And so, if that's the case, to say that I need this sexual expression is to deny a reality of, of what God has said and, and to, to take something that God has not given to you in this moment uh, if, you're, if you're not married. Uh, and so uh, that, that would be one way I would approach it. The other way I would approach it is uh, I, I, d- I can't conceive of a way in which that is done without lust. Um, if you can explain that to me, then, you know, maybe. Uh, I, I just don't think that's possible. So uh, that, those would be the two things I would say. Yeah, this question is, what information literature is available to give to my spouse or loved ones to help them understand the struggle? Let, let me just, because we have quite a few other questions here, but I forgot to mention that I did make a copy of uh, a few of Lisa's slides giving books and websites that can provide you information, and it's on the table right outside the door. So there should be plenty of copies, so, so grab one of those uh, on your way out. If they're gone, let me know, and I'll make sure that you get a copy. Um, okay, is it likely the case <clears throat> that the occurrence of repressed memory are related to brain damage that occurs with addiction? Is it likely the case that the occurrences of repressed memory are related to the brain damage that occurs with addiction? Um, I'm not sure I'm understanding, so I'll kind of address both sides. Um, so, so um, trauma eventually does damage to the brain, okay? And if you actually look at individual experiences that might be severe enough in, in the younger years to be repressed. So those would be your capital T traumas. Sexual abuse is one of them. And God forbid that there would be, but there is sexual abuse to children over years, okay? And, that, and that's a thing and that happens. So that would be classified as one of those things that might be severe enough to be repressed, so not remembered. Um, it is not unusual to find someone who is in a sexual addiction who eventually in therapy will remember repressed memories of sexual abuse in early childhood. So that is, that is often co-occurring. Uh, to say it's causal, um, you know, we're, the jury's still out on that but I would say it's correlated hugely. Um, The brain trauma that happens from addiction by itself, very similar, takes out frontal cortex, so same area, similar symptoms, you know, the short-term memory, the relational skills, empathy for others, uh, ability to contemplate, uh, a decision and the results of that decision in one thought, um, motivation, all those things. Uh, so speech, speech center, <laughs> you know, left front. Um, so a lot of times we get flummoxed if we're, tr- if we're um, um, triggered, can't talk right, scatters our thoughts, that kind of thing. And we, and we are not motivated at all by what we're about to say or do affecting someone else. So that's all. So yeah, it's, it's similar. Sometimes it's related. But in order to treat 
effectively. You, um, in my opinion, and I mean, I'm open to, I'm still taking classes just to get better at this, but uh, uh, I'll probably never stop. My family's like, what, you got, <laughs> you got, you know, your initials are across the page, what are you doing? But, um, but in my opinion, presently, we really do need to arrest the addiction first um, because it continues to block therapy in some fashion by medicating the things that you would need therapy over. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I, I think, I don't know, I, I hope I have answered that. If not, go ahead and text another question in <laughs> and, and we'll get to that. So this, this is probably the most serious of all the questions that I've received today. Where did Josh get his snazzy sweater? <laughs> I have no idea. You're going to have to ask my wife. <laughs> She's not here, but I'll ask her. <laughs> Come find me later. I'll text her and ask her. Okay. All right. That's fair. That's fair. All right. Uh, a little levity as we now move to uh, other um, genuinely serious questions. How much do you share with your children or your extended family when your addiction is uncovered? Um, and particularly those of you who have struggled with addiction, maybe you could tell a little bit about your experience. How, how did you start opening up with others about it? Uh, well, in my case, uh, I actually am in a family that has an addiction. My, my mother uh, suffered from anorexia for about 15 years and during the time of my addiction when I hadn't revealed it to my parents uh, she was actually going through counseling and hadn't revealed it to us my, my sister and I uh, until one day about in my mid-30s she had my sister and I together in our living room and through her therapy she came out and let us know that uh, she was in recovery and going through the process of course we had no idea uh, and pretty much from that, after seeing her do that in front of me, uh, eventually gave me the strength to let them know. Uh, I wasn't as brave as her. I, I couldn't actually stand in front of my mom and dad. I actually wrote a letter to both of them and left it uh, before uh, I went to work one day. Uh, but then when I uh, returned, uh, you know, she's, she said, uh, we're very proud of you and uh, we're going to get you the help that you need. And, and yeah, from there, uh, then yeah, now they're both on my side. They're both warriors on my team in my battle. And uh, they're definitely always constantly checking in on me. And our communication is, is very open uh, as it should be. I would say uh, it depends on the age of children and just it just kind of it's it, it's very case by case and so I th I think it's really good and important. I know I, I don't know if this was talked about in the morning session a little bit but but if if you're discovered it's it's one thing uh, but if you are entering into recovery disclosing that information is another thing uh, and you want to do that well because it can be very very damaging and so you want to do that in consultation with a therapist, in consultation with a coach. Like you want to be uh, hel helping to know the impact of your words before you do that. Um, so it's really important that you know some of those things before you step into that space. Um, but I would say like it is good to eventually get to a place of real openness, uh, particularly with your children. Uh, you know, I plan uh, as my children get older to share with them. My children are young right now, but to share with them my own struggles uh, because it is uh, it helps me establish with them grace so that if they encounter similar things or when they encounter similar things, uh, th they'll come to me and not someone else and hide it. Um, the, the number of times I've sat with men and have said, what would your life look like if the first time you had any experience with this, that you were able to sit with your dad and say, hey, this is going on, what, what do I do? Like, how would your life look different? And every guy just has this look of like, I can't even imagine that. My life would be so different. And so to build space like that, you've got to be open and honest. 
Uh, I've never, I don't think I've ever had a moment where I've shared my story and not had someone come talk to me and be like, I've never sh- shared this with anyone. And it's like, yeah, no. Like, it, as soon as you start to open up, you actually allow others to open up, right? Exactly what you were talking about with your mom. And so, uh, like, when it's appropriate, that's really, really important, I think. Well, I would, I would, um, as far as uh, disclosing to one's children, I would um, encourage you to get a consult with with somebody, either a therapist or a coach that understands, you know, the fam- family dynamic and family systems uh, uh, philosophy of therapy, um, because there are certain. Um, it, it can be very simple. It's supposed to be very simple. It's supposed to be very. Um, uh, just matter of fact, positive. I would I would say uh, disease paradigm is a great way to present that. Um, in Christian families, we we can we combine that with the biblical paradigm, and uh, we emphasize the positive that you know you, you know. In I'll just choose a gender here. So your dad um, became convicted, and you know wanted to a change, and this is a very brave thing, and your mama has been through a lot, and so on and so on, um, and she's, she's very brave to be here still by his side, things like that. So we, we really emphasize the positive. There's, there, is, there are good ways and bad ways to disclose. Um, and and I, I'm so glad that Josh thought of um, the idea of disclosing to one's partner. That really needs to be done in a therapeutic setting or um, a setting where a coach is very, very experienced. Um, because there is documented endless amounts of damage that uh, is done uh, when when uh, addicts just disclose little at a time based on the partner's questions, tell her this little thing, and I'm using gender here, but it could be either gender, uh, tell, you know, tell her this thing uh, to see how it sets, because I don't want to tell her this other thing if the first thing sets badly, things like that. We call that a staggered disclosure, and it is—it requires rigorous trauma therapy in that partner to get her over the, that because she feels like she knows everything. Then, oh, good, he's told me, and then there's another disclosure later. It's just—it's just the worst choice in the world. Um, and there are ways to do it, ways that are harmful, as Josh was saying. You really want to have some help with that one. How do I address an acquaintance who is open and seemingly unashamed about their use of porn? How can I discuss the devastating consequences of porn without pushing them away entirely, even when they discuss using porn with no shame? I would say it depends on the relationship you have with the person and uh, certainly whether or not they're a Christian. Uh, if they're a Christian, you can be a lot more bold to just really go after it, um, I think, uh, depending on your relationship with the person. But I think, too, um, it can start by sharing, uh, if you have an experience with it, sharing your own experience uh, can be helpful um, to share with others. You know, I have often shared with folks who have, have talked like this uh, with um, I, I don't know that you know the stories that I know. Can I share with you some stories of some lives who have been ruined by this? And, and, and kind of enter into that space. And then also, I think another way to talk about this, honestly, is the social justice aspect of uh, the connection between this and sex trafficking. And so check out Fight the New Drug, and they've got like a specific like, section on it, and you can learn some easy facts to be like, hey, did you know this? Um, and just kind of throw it out there because, you know, in, in our culture, um, like sex trafficking is this thing that, that no one's like pro-sex trafficking, right? Like no one's like, yeah, yeah, that's totally fine. Um, so if you connect those two, you're saying, by saying you're okay with this means that you're saying you're okay with that. And kind of connecting the dots for them I think is helpful. I just had a brainstorm while he was talking. Um, you could even... If it, if it feels like you're not bold enough to do that, you could say exactly the same thing that he just said with a piece of data or two. And start it with, dude, I went to this conference this past weekend and this wild and crazy pastor was saying, and I'm, you know, I, I mean, I, I, it's funny to me, but I, I am dead serious. 
I mean, people know, you know, he's a firebrand and all of that. And you can just like go right in there and just be like, here's what he said. I have never heard this before. Did you know that there was a centerfold and the industry didn't even know it and they're very legal conscious? Stuff like that. Um, and how, you know, and how, dude, it must be impossible to tell where the trafficking is. Mm -hmm. Things like that, as, as in, I heard him say that. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of ways to get this truth out. Yeah, and I'd even follow that up. I know that, uh, so I've had conversations with students, uh, Ball State students, and, and uh, wanted to share some information about uh, the connection between pornography and sex trafficking as like a writing a paper related to this and, and a professor being like, this is crazy. Like, pornography is totally fine. And, and they actually engaged on that conversation and it went really well by engaging on the conversation in that way of like, hey, but have you actually looked at these things? And then it was like, oh, actually, maybe, maybe this isn't okay. Um, and so I, I think approaching it that way is, is actually really helpful. All right, next question is from a couple in their last trimester of pregnancy and expecting um, some you know, increased stressors, lack of sleep, uh, some necessary abstinence, and uh, wondering how or what some, are some steps they can take to continue fighting for sobriety knowing that these changes are coming up. And then I, I might just add to that too, uh, just you know, there are situations that people find themselves in where the temptation is greater. People on business trips, for instance, you're in a hotel room and you have no accountability at all. So how, how do you prepare for those times? Yeah, I could start. <laughs> Looking at the one with four kids, huh? Four young kids. <laughs> yeah, uh, this feels fresh. Uh, uh, no, I think the reality is asking the question is really huge, right? Like I think the reality of preparing for those things is asking, how, how do I prepare for that, right? And so it means being aware of increased stress, like, helps you have an awareness of, like, what do I do? And just being aware of it is, like, a huge boost forward because you're already expecting it. Um, and so that means, right, when you're expecting higher stress, whatever your stressor is, as you identify what your stressors are, whenever you're expecting higher stress, you have to set higher standards, right? Like we don't lessen standards, we increase those things, and we set higher boundary markers. And so it means like, okay, I'm going to schedule, uh, so it may mean like, okay, I've got my accountability partner or whatever, I'm scheduling uh, time with them you know, the first six weeks after a baby comes. <laughs> and so we're going to have conversations together. And we're going we're gonna to talk through this. I'm going to have three or four people that I know I can text in the middle of the night um, when I'm rocking a baby and, like, I'm feeling tempted and all the, that stuff. Like, I know that there are folks that I can reach out to, and I have been made aware of that, and they know that. And we as a couple have talked about, hey, how do we avoid this stuff? Um, like, how do we know these things and enter into it graciously uh, with one another and have lots of prayer over that and, and really are, you know, having other people involved in that process with you, I think is really, really huge. So that, that would be the first thing I would say. Any other? Yeah, regarding the, the travel circumstances, um, yeah, th th those are instances where definitely, uh, of course, when you go to a hotel room with a television and they could have movie channels or, or different things that, I mean, there are some places that you could actually get that removed. I mean, a lot of times, of course, you can disconnect it, but I usually involve, once again, my support staff in those decisions to let them know. I always do a check-in prior to what's going to happen, and then the next morning let them know what's going on and how the night went because that's that accountability. I mean, you don't go in those situations, at least I don't, you can't go into those without accountability because there's just too many things there that are not really your control. I mean, you can, like I said, unplug the TV, you can do certain things, but having that accountability with those people, at least, you know, you have to, at least in my case, you know, you could easily lie to them if you want, but then you're just once again hiding again. So you got to tell those people the truth and you got to do, they got to follow up too. And they're going to follow up. You just don't, here's my check-in and we're done the next day or two. Hey, how you doing? How's it going? You know, especially on trips that might be more than one day. 
but there are things, you know, a lot of times with the rooms, I mean, hotels are, are starting to become more, uh, they adapt a little bit to situations. So you can ask, uh, call the front desk and see what they're willing to do with TVs. Uh, you know, in terms of disconnecting things, they, they may be able to do that. Uh, I haven't traveled very much here lately, so I can't give you the updates there, but uh, I know that they're accommodating more requests than they used to. So the, the policy at Light Sources that we um, encourage having a travel plan every time there's a trip. So it covers certain bases um, and it takes their routine that they're in because most people train kind of like a samurai warrior as you can gather from the testimonials here. It's a, it's a training of the mind, it's a discipline of the body and it's a routine of the day. So it's a very, it's a very beautiful way to uh, conduct one's life to follow Christ and um, it's a discipline that is above and beyond most people. So the gift of urgency <laughs> that people who are in an addiction have uh, often is a great boon to their spirituality and causes them to move faster and deeper with Christ. Um, and I could probably get some amens in the audience of those of you who are in recovery. Um, but I will say then that it's kind of a standard, it's a routine. They do a recovery plan for travel um, and they let their peers know ahead of time it's, it's, um, it's a beautiful thing and it, it works beautifully. I will also say that um, it's something spiked my interest in the question um, about the idea of extended celibacy during, during and after the birth of a baby. Uh, or before, during, and after the birth of a baby. Um, the idea that celibacy, um, let's see, how should we put this? Celibacy is a thing, and Josh touched on it earlier, that is um, seen as really unusual by our culture. But I don't think it should be. I mean, I, th I think that um, yeah, no, I just think it's a cultural bias um, because um, as, as he was saying earlier, we don't really need sex. Contrary to a lot of popular belief among my colleagues even. <laughs> it's not a need. And I mean, Patrick Carnes was the first person uh, to put it on the map like, no, it's not a need. And, and okay, so it's, uh, we have to accept that. Uh, as a society, but it's really hard with the pornifiedness of all of our media and stuff. But um, if you haven't experienced celibacy, then it does seem like a big mountain, you know, to to climb. Uh, but but just nor you know, allow yourself to normalize it. Talk to people who have who have done it, um, and let it be a part of. Even Paul talks about it, you know, being a part of of uh, you know, fasting from being physical with your mate and stuff, being a part of your spiritual discipline uh, from time to time, a routine, you know. So, um, so it, and, and then the other part, clinically I would add, a lot of people um, of the male gender, especially because of the way our uh, brains are uh, hooked up as females versus males, express, um, put a lot, a lot of undue emphasis on the physical expression of intimacy because the emotional expression of in intimacy is, is lacking uh, because the circuits are not naturally that way as much in a male brain as it is in a female brain. We're, we're, females are really hardwired for it, uh, so it comes a lot more naturally. But it does not mean that males are not made for emotional intimacy, they aren't. It just requires intentionality and so I would encourage anyone uh, coming up here on, you know, here comes the, here comes the baby and all, all um, to explore um, with some, some depth. Some, one of those um, exercises that Coach Alyssa talked about that you can have with your kids, you can have with your mate as well, the uh, pick an emotion exercise. We call it the um, feelings exercise uh, every evening. Uh, and, you know, some people probably in the audience have done those. Um, they're amazing to build emotional intimacy, um, the, the knees to knees uh, uh, seating arrangement. The husband, the wife, sitting down, taking time intentionally each, each evening. Uh, your knees touching, the other person's knees facing, looking in each other's eyes, um, and conversing about something for just a few minutes. You could do the feelings exercise while doing that, while building that, because as Alyssa stated, attachment, that's the antidote <laughs> to all of that. That's the antidote, is attachment. I'm here, I'm here for you, I'm right here, right now. And it happens through the visual cortex. 
that's because God ordained it that way. Go figure, fearfully and wonderfully made, it's just one of those things. But how many times a day do we sit, knees touching knees and looking at each other's eyes? So, so those are little practical things, five minutes per night, and it seems like it's inconsequential, but it really isn't. It goes very deep, and it goes very deep into our makeup, into our primal makeup, and it helps build the emotional intimacy so that we are not um, prone to feel such a lack when the physical intimacy has to take a, a hiatus for a little while. Mm-hmm. When I finally surrendered, I accepted celibacy. I told God I would walk celibate as long as he left me here on this planet. Um, strangely enough, I have not exploded over the years, because it's been over five years now. Uh, God and his mercy, I guess, or blessings. I have had no sexual desires uh, since that day. Uh, there have been temptations, and I've been able to rebuke those things, but I'm perfectly at ease, and I think one of the major things that you talked about earlier today, I think in the healing process in the last two years, I have found myself glorifying in God's creation, walk, uh, being out around the countryside and seeing the beauty that he has created. I see more things than people now, uh, the beauty and wanting to be able to uh, listen to people and learn about them has been more gratifying than just about anything I've ever experienced in my life. Uh, the freedom that he has brought me is just phenomenal. Uh, I start to think about what God's done in the last five years and I start to tear up because he's been so merciful to me and he'll be merciful to you in all respects. It's just a matter of going to him and surrendering to him. Amen. I thought of one other thing. Um, I think when, when there are really stressful moments like the birth of a child, I, I think what's what compounds the possibility for temptation in this area is because it can be held very secret. And one of the things that we need to do, right, is to avoid secrecy, accountability, all those things. But the other thing is to actually give yourself grace in other areas of your life um, because we feel like we can't fail anywhere. And so we build up this incredible pressure to then this is the place that we end up failing. And so I think you got to give yourself grace in other areas. So specifically with the birth of a child, uh, greatest advice I got with our our firstborn was, you know, it took nine months for this baby to, you know, be born. Give yourself nine months before you establish any sort of normalcy. And that's like really helpful um, to just give yourself grace to be like, oh, this is okay. I can skip stuff. I can sleep when I can find it. Like, I, I, can, I can give myself grace in other areas because this battle is so crucial that I can't drain myself so much that I have no energy to do this thing. So it may mean I have to sacrifice career goals in this season. I may have to sacrifice some other hobby goals or something. But this is so crucial. I'm going to do it for this reason. Good. Okay, just couple more questions and then we'll conclude. After 12 plus months of freedom from pornography, what is the effect on the brain of a slip up in viewing again? Do broken neuropathways and brain damage come back? There, that's a fantastic question. I, I get asked that all the time. So depending the, you know, they're using the term slip up. So we have a, um, a slip would be, I'll just define that um, in my practice and the way we do things. A slip is, okay, so you're on the internet, you're, um, you know, researching something, legit. And here's a pop-up on the side, it's a um, Sports Illustrated or something like that and you're not properly shored up, you're not on your game and you click on it. And then of course from there, it's, you can surf and you can see this particular individual. And so, so at that point, before you start surfing, you catch yourself. Or you catch yourself staring before you click. So something like that, it's right, it's just right here. 
and you close the computer and you call your sponsor. That's a slip. No, I would say it's a slip if you click. Okay, so there's, it's a fine line, you see what I'm saying? But the, you close the computer and you call the sponsor, okay. A lapse would be if you click and then you surf a little, click again and end up masturbating. Then you close the computer and call your sponsor. So that's a lapse. A relapse is nobody knows about it and you keep doing it for days. That's a relapse. Relapses will, in my opinion, um, run the risk of recreating that neural pathway to where you're gonna have to fight to get it back. Does, does all the brain damage happen that quick? A week, two weeks? I'm not an expert on exactly how much time it takes. Um, would you, if you caught it after a week and finally decided to tell somebody, um, would you have as much rebuilding to do as you did at the beginning? Probably not. Now let's go to the other op opposite end to the, the slip. So you either catch yourself staring and then close the computer. I wouldn't even necessarily call it. I think it's a close call. Let's look then at the next step. You click once and then you catch yourself and go, oh, I can't, bam, I can't be surfing. So that's a, that's a, that's a slip, you clicked, <laughs> okay. That I don't think, in my experience, I haven't seen that really change anything in, in the neural pathways, other than it'll change what you do in your program. Why? Because you somehow or another were vulnerable. And so we bring it back to the office. We, we work through, okay, so what was happening to you the day before? What was happening to you the, the day of? What was going on? How did you handle it? When was the last time you talked to your sponsor? And, and so we map that. But no, I, I think somewhere between a slip and a relapse, <laughs> probably you get your neural pathway change going and then you start losing some, some tissue again. That's what I think. All right. Last question. What would you say to somebody who uh, says to you, you know, I, I'm just so tired of engaging in this battle it just seems like it's up and down. I get a victory, then I get a lapse and a relapse, but then I come back and it's just been going on for years and I'm just wondering if this is ever gonna end. What would you say? Therapy. Mm -hmm. I can help that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if I may say so among friends here, God can send me in there with you. And it's not so that, it, you know, it's not so I can stay there forever. But I can get a lot of people through that knothole so that they can then pick it up like these guys have. That's what I would say. And I'll just say, too, you know, after hearing my testimony, and I mean, what I tell people this, I was in bondage for 25 years. And I'm at the happiest point in my life as of this moment right now. There's so much joy that I have currently from where I was to where I am now. And it involved a lot of work. But, and I, there was points, as Pastor Bob said, I got tired and I didn't know where to go, but I needed help. And then I got the help. I talked to Lisa. She helped me. Once again, she, you know, it's like anything. If you have your plumbing's down, you go to see a plumber. In this case, She's trained. She's, you know, a sexual addictions counselor. I had to go see her to get the healing I needed because she had the information and tools to figure out there was traumas in my life that I had to explore that I had no clue what they were. And once we started to work on those, then the real healing began. So hopefully I'm just a walking testimony to that question right there. That was the last one. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, that's the last question I have, but go ahead. Okay, yeah. so we got EMB over here. We got pure desire over there. And this is in order of kind of pure desire tends to be a little more, um, ner you know, nerdy like study stuff, although they study also in the EMB at some, you know. So you got EMB here, you got pure desire, you got therapy. Underneath it all, 
is the fire of God. Amen. And so what we represent up here, you know, it's a, there's no silver bullet. This takes the whole fearfully and wonderfully made means we've got lots of aspects in, in, within these physical bodies. And God inhabits all of the help that you see represented here. And so I would just encourage you, try something different. <laughs> if what you've been doing isn't working for you, go to the next level. You can do this. <laughs> so can your friends, so can your family, and so can your partners. I think that's a good note to, to conclude on, a hopeful note. And uh, that's really our desire here is not to send you out here full of shame, but full of hope. So I hope that's the case. Um, there is hope for those of you struggling with this. Thanks for your questions. Thanks for your attendance. Thanks for your good attention. Josh, I'm going to ask you to close us in prayer, please. God, we come before you now, and Lord, we are incredibly thankful for the testimonies of grace that we have heard, and God, we are also incredibly hopeful for the things that you will do, and so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do a mighty thing. Uh, every year when this happens, uh, someone, someone's life is changed, and it may not be changed today, but it sets a trajectory, and we get to hear about it years later as they stand on stage and declare the things that you did. So Holy Spirit, we pray and we trust that you are doing that now, and we pray that you would do abundantly more. God, that you would be at work and that you would give courage to those who need courage. Lord, would you work, if there's anyone here who's struggling and hasn't told anyone ever, would they come tell someone today? And God, would you give encouragement and strength to those who are entering into uh, new things in the world and walking into places in which they're having conversations around this or parenting children in the midst of this culture? God, would you protect them? Would you encourage them? Would you equip them? And God, would you purify your church? Jesus, you bought your church with your blood and you will make her pure and radiant to stand before you one day. And God, we just pray that you would make us more and more pure today so that we would be your hands and feet in the world. God, would you work powerfully to purge us of this evil and to sanctify us? So that you, Jesus, who are worthy of all glory and honor and praise, would gain all glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.